Well, good morning, church. It's Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem with the cross on his mind and the salvation of his people in his heart. It's an emotion-packed day on a normal year, but perhaps especially so on a year like this, where we can't even gather together to worship. As you've likely heard by now, uh, we're going to be extending our period of not being able to gather corporately uh, through the end of the month in order to submit to our governing authorities. It's clear that the COVID-19 pandemic is not over yet, and we want to do our part to help flatten the curve and prevent unnecessary spread. Now, I've I know that there are many in our church body that are actually praying each night at 9 p.m. over this whole situation. And I want to invite you to join us in that prayer. You know, we say that we're a church of fervent prayer, which means that we seek the Lord with passionate intensity. Has that been true of you over this past month? Has your life been characterized by fervent prayer? I think it's God's irony that he allowed our memory verse for the month of March to be Jeremiah 33 verse 3, which says, Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. How'd that go? Did you seek to memorize that passage? And perhaps even more importantly, did you seek to put it into practice? I know for me, God has been doing a work on my heart in this particular area. So again, I want to invite you to join us at 9 p.m. every night to pray. And this isn't some kind of conference call or a digital anything. This is just wherever you're at, in your home, uh, to just stop what you're doing and seek the face of the Lord. And to pray over our current circumstances for our community, for our nation, uh, for our world, however the Lord might lead you. And I know for Michaela and I, um, it's been very beneficial for us each night to kind of take a different angle in our prayer to think about the situation from a different aspect and pray for different things. It's also been very helpful for us to set a reminder in our phones. So at about 8.45 every night, it goes, and we're reminded, oh, it's time to pray. And we go find one another, and we spend some uh, dedicated time together praying. I hope you'll join us for that. And it's a powerful reminder that even though we are apart and cannot gather together, that we can still gather before the throne of mercy and grace. And seek the face of the Lord together. And I hope we all say thank you, Jesus, for making that possible. It's good for us to get our minds set on our great, sovereign, powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, unchanging God. In fact, why don't we do that right now? Would you please bow your heads where you're at as I lead us in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now. And we're thankful to be able to gather, even though we are separated, but to gather before your throne and to lift our voices in prayer to you. What a privilege, what a gift. And we just want to come before you right now, crying out over the things that are happening in our world and just saying, God, we know you're sovereign. We know you're in control. Help us to trust you. Help us to follow you each and every day. And Lord, as we wrestle through these changes in our life, May we not stop worshiping you. May we keep you on the throne of our lives and of our hearts. And to you be the glory. Please help us today as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in light of it being Holy Week, I do want to make you aware of some additional resources that we want to make available to you. Our pastor team has been working hard with DJ uh, to record some video devotionals for each day of Holy Week, starting with today, Palm Sunday. 
And so you can see on our social media accounts or if you go to our church's website at harvestdemoine.org slash holyweek, that there's going to be a little five to six minute video devotional for you for each day of the week. And the idea there is to take you back in time to when Jesus was walking the earth and what was going on in his life during this week. And I would hope you would gather your household together. You take a few minutes each day to just think about what was happening as Jesus and his disciples were heading towards the cross and towards his resurrection. I also want to let you know that there's another free resource on that webpage called The Final Days of Jesus. That's a free resource from Crossways, and it's a a more in-depth study of Passion Week, of Holy Week. And so if you want to go even deeper and you want to really dig in, You can feel free to download that PDF and allow that to help you prepare your hearts for worship. Uh, We hope that as the week goes on, that we would be ready to worship the Lord at Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. We're also going to have a special online event this evening uh, at 6.30 p.m. right here on Facebook Live. And so this is our first ever digital Harvest Hangout. Jack and Emily Flaherty are going to be hosting that. And they've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes to get that organized for you. So I want to encourage you to go on Facebook. Um, You can even pause the video right now. Go like that event, Harvest Hangouts, Palm Sunday. And then you'll be notified later this evening when the event starts. Come on and join us and and interact with the rest of the church family. It'll be a great time to be able to just see how everyone's doing. And uh, there's going to be activities for all ages and all walks of life. So don't worry. Uh, There'll be something for you to do. And it'll be good for you to be able to interact with the body. Well, in addition to those opportunities, there's one more thing I want to make you aware of. It's an opportunity to be salt and light in our community. You know, these are very interesting uh, days and, and weeks ahead of us. And we're trying to figure out how can we be a blessing to those around us to be salt and light to our community. The Food Bank of Iowa has asked churches in the Grimes area to partner with them to get food to those who are in need. And so our church is going to be working with uh, Hope Lutheran here in Grimes to be a partnership with Food Bank of Iowa. So Hope Lutheran is going to open up their church building to be a packing and distribution center for that food. And our church is going to help deliver the food. And so we want to encourage you to consider. um, It's actually a very, I think, easy way to serve. You take one other person from your household, get in your car, you'll come to our church and you'll pick up the boxes of food that need to be delivered that day. And then you'll take them to that house, leave them on the doorstep so there's no real human interaction. You're keeping yourself safe. You're keeping them safe, practicing social distancing, but still meeting needs. And so if that's something that would be of interest to you, um, further down this page on the sermon page, there is a list of resources from the sermon. And one of them says, click here to serve. And so I would encourage you to, to click on that link and sign up for the delivery service. We'll keep an eye on that, and we'll make sure that um, we're communicating with you about the details of that. Thank you for helping care for those who are in need. Well, let's go ahead and turn our attention now to the study of God's Word. We're going back to the Gospel of Matthew today, back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And last week, Jack introduced us to a new section of the sermon. In chapter 6, we're getting into this section on religious hypocrisy. There's some themes that come all the way from verse 1 through verse 18. And so let's look at verse 1 together. And if you need a moment, go ahead and pause the video to get your Bible and come back when you're ready. But you're going to be in Matthew 6, verse 1. Here's what it says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward 
from your Father who is in heaven. Well, see, Jesus is giving his disciples a warning here. He's saying, be careful how you live. Specifically, be careful of how you practice your righteousness. Now, let's stop for a moment and consider what is the definition of righteousness. That's a word we've used a lot in this series in Matthew. What has been our definition? Righteousness is this. It's obedience to God's will. And we first heard about this concept back in chapter 3. When Jesus is coming to the river uh, to be baptized by John the Baptist. And he says, John, you must baptize me because this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying, this is what God the Father wants. And we must do what God the Father wants. That's what it means to pursue righteousness. You do what God wants. You obey his will and his ways. And so when Jesus here in verse 1 of chapter 6 provides a warning to his disciples, he's saying, beware of how you practice your righteousness. What he means is beware of how you live out or do your faith, your religion. Beware of how you obey God. And if you keep reading in verse 1, you'll see that what he's actually most concerned about is their motive for their practice. Why are they doing it? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Aha, now we know something. He's calling out people who are obeying God as an act or as a show in front of others. This is the type of person who wants the approval, the adoration, the, uh, the attention of his fellow man. And Jesus says to that type of person, you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Ah, Jesus. He's saying you got what you wanted. You got that attention, that approval, that adoration of of other men or other women. And that's all you're getting. The father will not bless this man-centered type of behavior. And you really must understand what Jesus is teaching here in verse 1. If you're going to understand the rest of what comes next. And last week, Jack unpacked verses 1 through 4. In a lot of detail. So we're not going to cover those today. But instead we are going through verses 5 through 18. And if today happens to be your first time with us. I would encourage you to. As you have time in the days or weeks ahead. To go back to the beginning of our series in Matthew. And start listening to the messages that came before this one. Because Jesus is building on himself through this gospel. And you really need to understand the first five chapters. To get the richness of what we're studying now. So what we're about to see is Jesus confronting the practice of hypocrites. Jesus wants his disciples to practice righteousness before God alone. Their motive must be to please God, not man. Don't be putting on a show is what he's saying. Which is why today's lesson is called Lessons from a Hypocrite. Lessons from a Hypocrite. And as we study today, it's going to be a little different than normal because we're studying what not to do. Instead of what to do. And what we're going to see is how not to worship God. So are you ready? Are you ready to get in the word? I know you are. I know you are. Let's go back to the word now. Let's read verses uh, 5 and 6. Here's what it says in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And at the street corners. That they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's go ahead and pause there for a little bit. This is a very similar pattern to Jesus' teaching as he did in verses 1 through 4 about giving. He says, there's an expectation that my disciples will pray. This is not if you pray, it's when you pray. And so when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Now you really got to be careful with this. You could very easily miss the main point. And as you read verses 5 and 6, you could conclude that Jesus is taking issue with the fact that they're praying in public. You might even go a bit further and conclude wrongly that Jesus is against public prayer. Maybe for some of you who are listening today, you might say, I knew it. I knew there was a reason why I don't like praying with others. No, 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 no. That's not what this is about at all. Don't misunderstand the passage. We're actually going to see a little bit later in verse 9, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father. It's a corporate prayer. We are to be praying with others. So what you need to note here in verses 5 and 6 is his focus, his primary focus, is on their motive for prayer. And we see that in the middle of verse 5. It says that they may be seen by others. That's the ultimate problem with the hypocrite's prayer. They are again seeking that attention, that approval, that adoration of other men. And so here's our first lesson from a hypocrite of how not to worship God. Do not seek the attention of others in public prayer. Do not seek the attention of others in public prayer. The the problem ultimately is the motivation for your prayer. Are you praying to give God the glory or self the glory? Do you want the people that you're around to say, wow, she's a really good prayer? Or do you want them to say, amen, to God be the glory. He has done great things. And the challenge in this kind of situation is that it requires you to evaluate your heart every time you're going to pray. Only you and God know the motive of your prayer. And so you have to ask yourself questions like this. Whom am I worshiping? Why am I praying? And if you're concerned about how others think about you or what their response might be, then perhaps you are guilty of seeking the approval of man. Now, I want to make sure that we address another scenario. It's a little different than what Jesus brings up here, but I do believe it's a valid application of what he's teaching. So here's the scenario. This could also take the form of refusing to pray in public. It may be that you're so focused on how others will respond that you you believe that they're going to disapprove of you, that they're going to reject you, and so you decide, well, I'm not going to pray with anyone. I'm not going to pray out loud at all. Again, the motive is the same. You're still focused on the approval of others rather than the approval of God. So different outcomes, but the same heart motive, which is why we must evaluate our motive in prayer. Jesus makes it clear that a hypocrite who prays to gain man's approval will receive their very limited reward. You'll get what you're after, but ultimately man's approval is meaningless in light of eternity. It's temporary, and it passes away. And even more importantly, the God before whom we all must stand and give an account one day, 
does not bless that type of prayer. But there is a type of prayer that he blesses. And so Jesus gives counsel for his disciples. Here's how to pray in a way that God will bless. Go to a private place and pray to your Father. Jesus is encouraging a private expression of worship that is authentic and God-focused. Now, again, please realize, Jesus is not saying that private prayer is better than public prayer. That's not what what he's teaching here. Instead, he's calling out the hypocrites who have this really expressive public prayer, but then in their private life, it doesn't match up. Their private prayer is weak and it's not there. There's a disconnect between how they practice prayer in public and how they practice prayer in private. And God sees that. You know, I've heard it said before that if you really want to know the measure of a person, look at how they act behind closed doors. Because anyone can put on a show in front of others when they believe people are watching. But how do they act when they don't think anyone is watching? When they think that they're in the privacy of their own home? then you get to know the measure of that person. You may fool other men and other women, but you can't fool God. He sees your hypocrisy. Don't put on a show. You need to worship God privately in your prayer and then allow that to flow out into the public realm. Right? Your public expression of worship first begins with your private expression of worship. And that prayer life must be for God's glory alone. Not for your glory and not for the approval of others. Now Christians, please don't miss the way that Jesus talks about God here. He says, God is your father. It's conveying that you have been adopted into his family. This is conveying nearness and intimacy. God is your father who delights to reward you. Well, what's the reward? Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly. But then, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, wait a minute. What about how he started the sermon? If you go back to chapter 5, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus laid out a series of blessings for people who are in God's kingdom and following his will and ways. These come from chapter 5, verses 2 through 10. They're the Beatitudes. And here's some of the rewards, the blessings that Jesus speaks of. He speaks of knowing that you're going to be in his kingdom of being comforted in your sorrows, of knowing that you will be with God for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. He speaks of being satisfied by God's righteousness, of receiving mercy from God, of seeing God face to face, and of being part of his family. Now, as you think about that, as you consider those rewards, those blessings, I mean, what possibly could be better rewards than that? I can't conceive of any. And I hope that your response would be, wow, Father, how great is your love towards us? How extravagant is your grace and mercy that you would offer such amazing blessings? Because what we need to realize is he doesn't have to bless us for obeying him, but he does. How gracious is that? How merciful is that? And you really have to ask yourself, why would I trade all of that for the fleeting approval of man? It just doesn't make sense to be a hypocrite because you rob yourself of great joy and you ultimately rob God of his glory. And if you're listening to this message and you are thinking, 
oh my, I might be a hypocrite. Meaning you know that your private and public prayer life, they don't match up and they don't please God. But here's what I'm calling you to do today. Get on your knees, confess that, and ask forgiveness. God delights to forgive. And you can right now pause this video and do just that. It doesn't matter whether you're a dad or a mom or a kid, if you're watching it with your household, it's good for them to be able to pray with you and pray over you. What a great example for you to humble yourself right now and say, I know this is an area in my life that needs to change. And so I want to address it before the Lord. Would you please consider doing that? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 7 to give even more instruction in prayer. Let's read that right now. In Matthew 6, verse 7 and 8, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You see, Jesus is saying, don't be babblers when you pray. And that's exactly what these pagan uh, worshipers would have done. They would have heaped up all of these empty phrases, uh, repeated them over and over again, added in all sorts of words because they thought that by doing so, they would get the attention of their gods and that they could begin to manipulate their gods. And Jesus says that's not necessary for a Christian because your father knows what you need even before you ask him. He doesn't hear you because of many words or repeated phrases but because you are his child. Think about that. And it certainly doesn't impress him for you to repeat yourself over and over again or to add in a lot of words. And as you understand this, that then brings us to our second lesson from a hypocrite of how not to worship God. Do not speak babbling prayers which are not from the heart. Do not speak babbling prayers which are not from the heart. Because that's what Jesus is taking issue with here. Their many words were reflecting a heart that wasn't worshiping God. They were trying to manipulate God. They are self-centered, not God-centered in their prayers. And the reality is, God already knows. He knows what you want. He knows the desires of your heart before you ever give voice to them. Which, again, shows us how amazingly intimate our relationship is with our Father in heaven. The creator of the universe cares about you. He is near to his people. Would you just let that sink in for a moment? That the God of all creation wants to be involved in your life? That he calls you his son or daughter and is near to you? And if you're listening to this right now and you would say, oh boy, I don't have that kind of relationship with God. And maybe you would even say, I want to know how to have that kind of intimacy with God. Then let's Let's just talk about that for a second. The privilege to call the creator of all things your father cannot be overstated. It's a tremendous thing to know that you are a part of God's family. And he has made that adoption process possible through his son, Jesus Christ. The very one whom we're learning from right here in the gospel of Matthew. He is the son of God. The one who came to save his people from their sins. And what he calls each one of us to do is to confess our sins, which means to agree with God about it, that I am a rebel, that you are a rebel. We've gone our own way. We've not lived according to God's will and ways. 
but instead have lived for our own will and ways. And then to place your faith in Jesus Christ. To admit that I can't save myself. I need Jesus to save me. And I want to follow him. And when you ask Jesus Christ to do that, to forgive you of your sins and to bring you into his family, he delights to do that. He says that you are forgiven and redeemed. That is good news. And if you want to know more about that or dialogue about that further or have questions, please just email me about that. On the sermon page, there's going to be a button there that says email Pastor Nick. If you click that, it's going to open up an email to me. Please send me whatever questions you have. Let's talk further about that. And if that's your situation today, I would also encourage you right now to write down Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. That's a great example from the scriptures of what we're talking about right here, of how God saves a person. Well, let's go back to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew. When you come to God in prayer, your heart must desire to glorify him. The righteous practice of prayer wants God's will to be done. And so with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus teaches on how to pray. He gives us a great model of prayer in verses 9 through 13. Here's what he says. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that model of prayer is not meant to be repeated verbatim over and over again. It's not the specific words that are what Jesus is focusing on, but what those words convey. He wants us to learn how to pray. And so Jesus is saying, here's what it looks like to pray in a way that honors the Lord. And there's a lot of really important observations. So we're just going to take it verse by verse and see what we can learn. Verse 9 says this. It starts with our Father in heaven. Let's take that word by word. Our. Right? Again, we talked about this earlier. That implies we're praying with others. This is a corporate prayer. Our Father. So we can pray publicly and privately. The next word is Father. We've talked a little bit about that. But the significance of being able to say the creator of the universe knows me. I'm a part of his family. He's adopted me in. That's incredible. That is a profound thing that we need to to recognize and to worship God for. And he's our father in heaven. So not only is he with us here, he's present everywhere, but he also resides in heaven. Uh, Our God is a big God. He is worthy of great praise. The next part of verse 9 says, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is not a very common word anymore, but it means to declare holy or to revere. And essentially what this is doing is we're saying, God, we want to declare how worthy of praise you are. You are worthy of adoration. Your name is beautiful, Lord. And God's name in the, in the scriptures means I am. I am the God who is, and I am the God who is with you. What a beautiful name that is. And we want to declare it. You are worthy of praise. In verse 10, we read, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's an affirmation of our desire to see God's will and ways done. His kingdom rule spread across the land, not ours. 
We know that in heaven, all things are under his authority. All things are operating just as he wants. And here on earth, we rebel against him. And so this is a prayer of humility. It's saying, God, may my way not be done. May it not be about me building my kingdom, but instead we want to build your kingdom. We want to make your will be done here. And let's just be honest and admit that that's a lot easier to say than to do and to live out. Think about this in light of our current situation. In light of COVID-19, are you willing to say, Lord, your will be done? Even if it means the complete upheaval of my life, even if it means the probability of me getting sick and suffering. Lord, have your way in me and show me the desires of my heart through this pandemic. Is that what you're willing to pray? Because that's what this prayer sounds like right now. This prayer means saying, God, I want you to do your will each and every day and have your will done in my life, not mine. So men, that means you're praying, God, I want to be a sacrificial servant leader in my home and in my community. Ladies, that means you're saying, God, I want to be a sacrificial servant helper in my home and in my community. Kids, that means you're saying, God, I want to honor my parents no matter how I feel about them. And for all of us, it means that we're saying, God, we want to see many people be saved and brought into your kingdom. So would you help us learn to love our neighbors as ourselves? That's what it looks like to pray for God's will to be done. And are you willing to live out that prayer? Those things are found in the pages of scripture. I prayed a a smattering of what God's will is as revealed in the scriptures. But if you dig into this, if you let this teach you, there will be many more such things to pray when we say, God, your will be done. Now in verse 11, we read, give us this day our daily bread. And if you notice, there's a transition here. Prior to this, the focus of the prayer was on your name, your kingdom, your will. And now Jesus is turning to say, forgive us, give us, lead us, deliver us. There's these requests that are being brought before the Lord. We're crying out to him. And this is a bit humiliating for the person who's praying it. It's admitting I'm not self-sufficient. I can't do this life on my own. God, I need you to move and to work and to act in me. I need you to show up, God, and to provide for my daily needs. Spiritually, physically, I need you to be my daily bread. And when I hear that particular verse, it really makes me think about Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, where, where the author says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. All right, we're saying, God, don't give me too much or I might get proud. I might get arrogant and think that I know better. I might think that I don't need you anymore, but please also don't give me too little lest I be tempted to rob and steal and sin and and do things that are not pleasing I want to be dependent on you. Give me my daily bread. And again, as you think about this, in light of where we are today, how willing are you to say, Lord, I only want what you have for me today. Give me just what you want for me today. I think that 
in light of what we see on social media and in the news about people being out in the public square hoarding toilet paper, hoarding uh, you know, hand sanitizer and all those other household goods is clear. There's a lot of people who aren't thinking this way. They're not thinking, Lord, give me my daily bread. Instead, they're focused on, I want to get as much as I can right now. And that may not look like hoarding toilet paper for you or hand sanitizer. Maybe for you it looks like checking your 401k or stock portfolio nonstop. Maybe it looks like you're working all the hours you can possibly work because you just want to cling and hold on to financial stability in your life. Or perhaps it's the complete opposite. Maybe you're not even looking at your finances right now. You don't want to know what it says. Maybe you're not even giving a thought to how you use your time each day. And instead, you're just living however seems right in your own eyes. Many are being driven by fear right now or by a desire to control. And where that leads us is to operate in selfish, sinful ways. We try to keep control of our life or the perceived control of our life rather than realizing that God's the one in control. I know that's a lesson that I've had to learn the hard way over these last few weeks. Now, please hear me out. I'm not saying that you need to let your toilet paper run out as a sign of faith or uh, give up on having hand sanitizer in your house or nothing like that. But what I am challenging you to do is to live by faith and not by fear. Trust God to take care of you. Trust him to provide for you. Look to him for your daily bread. Don't look to the world to satisfy. He is the one who provides. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. So here now we have a plea of forgiveness. A plea of forgiveness that implies we've also been actively forgiving those who have wronged us and sinned against us. Which, if you think about who is praying this prayer, this is fascinating. Jesus is the sinless one. He has never sinned, and yet he knows those who are going to follow him, they have sinned and they will continue to sin. And so he's going to give them a model of praying where he puts a priority on asking for forgiveness for your sins. And again, assuming that you're regularly forgiving others. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. And if you make it this far in in praying, uh, this part strips you of any pride you might have had left at this point. Because what it says is an admission that I am a sinner and I need a savior. I have a debt that cannot be repaid. And I'm coming to the king and I'm saying, will you please pardon this debt that I cannot repay? And ultimately we realize there's no room for pride in God's kingdom. If you're not regularly acknowledging your sin and asking for forgiveness before God, then one of two things is happening in your life. Either your heart is in the process of hardening or it's already hardened. And both of those are dangerous places to be. And as we continue our study through this gospel, you're going to see that Jesus placed a high priority on handling sin biblically. And what that means is that you confess it and that you ask forgiveness for it. Will you please forgive me for the way that I treated you or spoke to you? Or if you're the one who's been sinned against, that you're willing to grant forgiveness. And then to turn and go a different way, to live in a way that pleases Christ moving forward. And as Christians, we must become experts at dealing with sin biblically. Which also means that we must be humble. And we're going to hear when we get to chapter 7, 
the call is to first take the log out of our own eye. Which means, learn to deal with your part of the problem first. As far as you're concerned, you are the biggest part of the problem. And if you think that way and operate that way, that's going to help keep your conflicts short. And it's going to accelerate the, the reconciliation process. Well, when we get to verse 13, Jesus finishes the prayer by saying, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, a lot of work has gone into studying the original manuscripts since then, and probably a better translation is, but deliver us from the evil one. And this, this, this is a little tricky. We need to let Scripture in, interpret Scripture here. We know from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, that God does not tempt anyone. So what we can't do is read this passage and say, oh, God's the one who leads us into temptation. No, no, no. That's not what it's saying. A better way of understanding this would be protect us from being led into temptation. This is a cry of deliverance and protection from our own sinful hearts and from the evil one who loves to tempt us. And if you're uh, reading this right now and looking at this verse, it would even be appropriate to think back to Matthew chapter 4, where we got to see uh, Jesus led out into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the devil. That's what he loves to do. And if he loves to do that to Jesus, you can bet he loves to do it to Jesus' followers. And to everyone, he wants you to be tempted. We need protection from temptation. So as you think about this prayer, and, and think about it as a model from Jesus to his followers, here are some of the things that you need to realize that it contains. It contains adoration of God. It contains submission to his will and ways. It contains acknowledgement of our utter need and dependence on him. It certainly forces us to cultivate humility in our lives. And finally, it encourages us to seek forgiveness from our past sins, but also protection from any future sins. That's a very robust model to learn from. And it's really hard to be a hypocrite when you're praying in this way. In fact, I love what Pastor John Stott says about this. Here's what he says. It is comparatively easy to repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer, like a parrot or indeed a heathen babbler, meaning you're just saying it without understanding what it means. He goes on. To pray them with sincerity, however, has revolutionary implications, for it expresses the priorities of a Christian. In the Christian counterculture, our top priority concern is not our name or our kingdom or our will, but God's. And whether we can pray these petitions with integrity is a searching test of the reality and depth of our Christian profession. He's saying it would be good for us to really evaluate whether we can pray this type of prayer with integrity and conviction. Because if we can, it ought to change your life radically. And so that would be a good thing for you to do this week, to slow down and go back through the Lord's Prayer and just ask yourself, can I pray this way? Do I pray this way? And what would it look like for me to pray this way? Well, after he finishes up this model of prayer, Jesus gives some pretty heavy teaching in verses 14 and 15. We can't miss this. So let's go ahead and look there. And here's what he teaches in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What, Jesus? It sounds like you're telling me that if I fail to forgive others, God the Father will refuse to forgive me. Yes, that is what he's saying. In fact, this is such an important teaching for kingdom people that it's going to come back up again later in the gospel. In chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Peter and his fellow disciples clearly had a hard time understanding what God's expectations were for forgiveness in his kingdom. And I believe that we still struggle with that just as much today. We don't understand the priority of forgiveness in God's kingdom. Which is why it's so helpful that our third lesson from a hypocrite about how not to worship is to fail to forgive others. We must not fail to forgive others. Because that's what a hypocrite does. A hypocrite fails to forgive others. And God's kingdom operates on the principle of forgiveness. And think about this for a moment. Who's going to be present in heaven? Who are they? Forgiven people. Sinners, rebels, scoundrels who were dead set on living for themselves when their lives were radically intersected by the love, grace, and mercy of our God. I'm talking about people like you and like me. If you've confessed your need for God to save you and rescue you from your sin. Kingdom people have been on the receiving end of the most extensive uh, forgiveness that we have ever seen. And your sin debt against the holy creator of the universe, it's immense. That's the point of the parable in Matthew 18. You had a debt so great that you couldn't repay it. But God was gracious. And he chose to forgive you of the debt that you couldn't pay when you asked. And so if you're hearing this and you're in Christ, you have been shown amazing grace. And so how could you not turn around and offer that same forgiveness and amazing grace to those who have sinned against you? Their sin is so insignificant in comparison to your sin against a holy God and my sin against a holy God. That's what Jesus is driving at here. God's people are forgiving people. They can't help but be forgiving because of how much they've received forgiveness. And so if you're not willing to forgive others, then either you may not be in God's family like you think you are, or you're failing to understand how small that person's sin is in comparison to your massive sin against God. So what I would encourage you to do is spend less time focused on how they've sinned against you and a bit more time focused on how you've sinned against God. And as you realize the magnitude of your sin against God, then soak in that forgiveness, that amazing grace that he has extended to you through his son, Jesus Christ. And as you soak in that, allow it to go horizontally as you extend forgiveness to others, to those who have sinned against you. Well, in the final lesson here from the hypocrite, we see Jesus address the practice of fasting. And so let's read now in verses 16 to 18. It says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. 
And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So we hear, uh, again, a very similar pattern to when Jesus talked about giving and when he talked about praying. It's not if, but when. So I'm going to keep my, my comments brief here. But here's our fourth lesson for how not to worship God. Do not draw attention to your fasting. Do not draw attention to your fasting. Right? This is a when, not if teaching. The assumption for Christ followers is that you will fast. What is fasting? Fasting is the practice of refraining from food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. I'll say that again. Fasting is the practice of refraining from food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. It could be that you want to grow in your prayer life. It could be that maybe you want to take time to fast as an expression of grief over some sin in your life. That maybe you're wanting to draw near to the Lord and seek his guidance or to humble yourself. There are a lot of reasons for why you might fast. It's a powerful spiritual discipline. And yet, it's so incredibly uncommon in our Western world where we have a hard time even conceiving of denying ourselves anything, especially food. But Jesus' teaching couldn't be clearer. Kingdom people fast. But do it privately, not for the approval of man, but for the approval of God. Again, he's saying your motive is what matters. Now, you may not know this, but we actually had a series of prayer and fasting nights as a church last summer. From the months of June through August, we did uh, these nights twice a, twice a month. And it was just a good opportunity to learn about these disciplines and, and even try to practice them. And it was good to grow together. And I had the privilege of teaching on the first night where we basically answered the question of what is prayer and fasting? And it uh, probably wouldn't surprise you to know that we studied this very same passage from Matthew chapter 6. And so what I want to do is I want to encourage you, again, on this page where the sermon is, under the resources from the sermon, there is a link to that specific teaching. And what I want to ask you to do is to go to listen to the part about fasting. That's at a, about the 30-minute mark. So you can click to about the 30-minute mark, and there's 10 minutes there where we talk about fasting and its purposes and some of the practical considerations that you need to, to think about before you try to fast, because um, there are some health things that you need to be aware of. And so I want to encourage you to do that. That's part of your homework for this week is to go click on that link, take 10 minutes to listen to some additional teaching about the discipline of fasting. And as we wrap up today, um, I'm going to give you even a little bit more homework. I'm, I'm under the assumption that each one of us maybe has a little bit more time than we would on our hands than normal. And so I want to give you some things that will help you pursue God and grow in your walk with him. And again, each one of these that I'm about to mention is found on the sermon page under the resources from the sermon links. And so again, as a reminder, over the course of this week, I want to encourage you to gather your household and watch the Holy Week videos with them. Allow that to prepare your heart for worship for Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I also want to encourage you to consider signing up to deliver food to families in need. Then one that you haven't heard yet, um, we have a new memory verse for this month. It's April. And so our memory verse, we're memorizing the pillar of courageous evangelism. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. So I want to encourage you uh, to begin working on that. And if you've never printed out the little uh, checklist of our six pillars, that is also here on the website. You can print that out and use that to help you memorize the scripture. But I also don't want to just ask you to memorize the scripture on evangelism. I want to ask you to practice evangelism. 
Now you might think, well, how am I going to do that? I mean, we're under some pretty serious restrictions right now. Use social media. There's a lot being shared this week about Easter. Please, please share those. Invite your friends to listen to the videos. Invite them to come and participate in the sermon uh, on Good Friday and on Sunday, Easter Sunday. Let them hear the gospel. Be bold in your evangelism, courageous in your evangelism. Also on this page, there's a link for the new prayer focus for the month of April. So again, our prayer ministry has been working hard to give you resources to help you grow in prayer this year. We've got a new list of ways we can be praying each week. I would encourage you to print that out and use that to help you grow. And then also for the month of April, um, we've specifically put together a seven-day prayer guide. And so this is a little study that will help you take steps to grow in fervent prayer. Jenna Russell's put a lot of work into this. I've been uh, working with her on it as well. And we would love for you to take this and um, print, print one out for everyone in your family and challenge them to work on it over the next seven days and allow God to do a work in you. And I'm just excited to see and hear what God's going to do during this fairly unique season in our lives. May we grow for his glory and for our good. You are loved. Have a great week.